by Clear Vision Development Group. This is Better Than Before with Tony Richards, a business leader's podcast. Each week, we'll provide you with top business insights, fresh perspectives from world-class guests, and the tools you need to lead better than before. And now, here's your host, author and business coach, Tony Richards. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another edition of the Clear Vision Better Than Before podcast. I'm Tony Richards, along with producer Bill. Hi. And we have a sponsor now. We're sponsored by University Subaru. From here, been here, always will be here. University Subaru, your truly locally owned dealer. And so we're happy to welcome University Subaru to our sponsorship list here on the Better Than Before podcast. Our numbers continue to increase. We're picking up more listeners every single week all across the globe. We've got several countries outside the United States that listen and several people within the United States that are listening. And we certainly appreciate all of you. And we'd ask you to please go give us a review where you listen to podcasts. And if you could give us a five-star review, that would just make our day. If you want to get uh, regular episodes as they're released, all you have to do is subscribe, and then you'll get a notification, and uh, they will automatically download to your device. So it's kind of a sad week. I'm just getting back from vacation. I spent a week last week in Kentucky, and I sat on my porch uh, overlooking Barkley Lake and Kentucky Lake and watched people take their boats out of the water for the winter, and that's how I mainly spent my vacation last week. And that sounds wonderful. It was wonderful. I wasn't ready to, to quit. And, I bet. But um, I have to come back here and see you, Bill, and all our fabulous employees and all of our wonderful clients. And Well, welcome back. Yeah, you bet. My dad has had a few health problems, so I spent a lot of time with him. And uh, hopefully we're going to get his stuff straightened out soon, I hope. Uh, he's going to be scheduled for heart surgery soon. And so I would appreciate thoughts and prayers for him as he goes through this and, and has a quadruple bypass surgery on his heart. And yeah. I, I'm just believing that he's going to feel a lot better once it's over with. Well, good. So 17 years since 9-11. Can you believe it? I can't believe it. It's, wow. I, I bought a car the day before 9-11, and I will always remember where I was on 9-11. I was standing in the newsroom in Columbia, watching it take place i was watching the television as the at least the second plane flew in i don't know if the wasn't live the first plane they they broke away and had footage of it later on but but i remember the day before on 9 10 otherwise i wouldn't remember 9 10 but i bought a car and i was supposed to go back and finish the paperwork and i called them and said i'm not going to be able to come back and finish the paperwork today and uh, they said, well, that's okay. Any any reason why? I said, you, you'll find out, you know, because the news had not totally broken at that point. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I remember going into the office and the lobby was empty. Yeah. And I couldn't figure out where everyone was at. Well, they, they were having a staff meeting uh, where I was and everybody was in a staff meeting and uh, I had seen it on TV. And when they came out of the staff meeting, I said, all total chaos is about to break out here. Mm. Everyone was in the break room. Uh, they were all standing around the TV. What was interesting is, and, and see if you think this too, is the first day I didn't really know what was going to happen. I thought, man, we're we're going to get the uh, 
emergency broadcast system alert from the president. We're going to go on total statewide alert, and we're going to go to war here or something. Right, right. Yeah, and I remember the uh, gas lines. I, everyone was rushing to the gas station to fill up with a tank of gas, which I thought was kind of odd. Yeah, and uh, because they damaged in the World Trade Center so many financial uh, institutions, we had quite the financial downturn there from 2001. We never really recovered from it all the way up to, and it's been 10 years since the financial crisis. We call it the financial crisis in 08. Can you, and that's, that seems like that was just yesterday. Yeah, I know. I, I feel the same way. Yeah, it just moves right along. But from 2001 to 2008, we had a steady decline. We never really recovered from that until after 2009. Mm -hmm. You know, the other thing is that a lot of people forget about the other two places. You know, they they think about the World Trade Center, but they forget about Shanksville, Pennsylvania. Right. And also Washington, D.C. and the Pentagon Mm -hmm. was the other one that got hit. And um, the president and first lady are going to be at the 9-11 memorial in Shanksville, Pennsylvania in the field there where the plane crashed. And that was the um, the flight they later made the movie about, the heroic people who mm-hmm. downed the plane rather than it flying into some buildings. There's a really interesting memorial, and I didn't know this, and you, you may listeners may not have known this either, but there's a Tower of Voices of the Flight 93 National Memorial in Shanksville, Pennsylvania, and the tower contains 40 wind chimes representing the 40 people that perished in the crash on September 11, 2001. Wow. And so if you're not familiar with the Tower of Voices for the Flight 93 National Memorial, you should look it up. It's uh, it's pretty awesome. And uh, we should never, never forget the people who lost their lives right. that day. Also, in the disaster category, we got a big hurricane headed for the United States. National Hurricane Center says that a hurricane watch has been issued for the east coast of the U.S. from Edisto Beach, South Carolina, southward to the North Carolina-Georgia border. The latest on Florence is that it's forecast to be one of the most intense storms on record to make landfall in North Carolina or Virginia. Number Category number four or five storm has struck land north of Carolina since 1851. So we haven't had a Category 4 or 5 storm hit north of South Carolina. That's very famous for not getting hurricanes. Right. And a few Category 3 storms have not made it that far north either. There's a rule for storms like this. Flee the water and hide from the wind. Evacuations at the coast are due to the surge threat and they're warranted. There is a high potential for a record storm surge in the Carolinas on the order of 15 to 20 feet or greater. Wow. This is the case even if the storm weakens just prior to landfall, as surge tends to correlate better with pre-landfall intensity. Inland areas could see damaging impacts with 15 to 30 plus inches of rain, potentially falling as far away as West Virginia, D.C., and Maryland. This is a nightmare inland flood scenario considering how wet the summer was in these areas. So they're just the opposite of us uh, in Missouri. We didn't have much rain this summer, but it sounds like they've they've had some and the groundwater is still there. So this is going to add to it. Hurricane force winds for more than a day to a swath of land about 350 miles in diameter, extending well inland, inland from the landfall point 
It's going to be one of the strongest hurricanes on record to make landfall in the Carolinas or the mid-Atlantic areas. And this could be a major test of how President Trump handles another multifaceted crisis, this time one that is possibly at his literal doorstep. CBS CEO Les Moonves is out. He resigned on Sunday, and he was accidentally copied on an email to the entire CBS board detailing damaging findings in the law firm's investigations and discussing how to proceed should he need to be put on leave. Uh, this story was in the Wall Street Journal. I guess uh, he accidentally got a copy of the email and saw how bad it was, so he decided to resign. Wow. They said he had hunkered down in his office and they hadn't seen him in a couple of days. Huh. So uh, he saw a shadow when that email went out, I guess. <laughs> he groundhog popped up. Bob Woodward's new book is the talk of the town. It's Fear, named Fear, went on sale at midnight last night at Kramer Books in DuPont Circle in Washington. It's in bookstores today. The White House will love this. He's going to be on 23 different interviews this week. CBS News, Today Show, Morning Edition on NPR, Fresh Air, U.S. Today's Susan Page, which uh, I think it's on the front page of the USA Today on Tuesday the 11th. Nightline, New York Times podcast, The Daily, The Late Show with Stephen Colbert, BBC Radio 4, The Guardian, Canadian Broadcasting, Fox News, Dana Perino is going to be on Wednesday. Tuesday Night Live is going to be on with Rachel Maddow on MSNBC. He's going to be on Morning Joe tomorrow. Uh, CNN's Anderson Cooper on Wednesday. Uh, 92nd Street Y with Slate's Jacobs Weisberg. CBS This Morning, PBS NewsHour, CNN's Fareed Zakaria, PBS's Amanpour and Company, Hugh Hewitt's radio show, PBS Washington Week with Bob Costa, and NBC This Coming Weekend on Meet the Press. Uh, so he is going to blitz the media, man. Be a busy guy. Here's a joke President Trump would not tell. Gary Cohn, who was then White House economic advisor, wrote a joke for President Trump to use at the White Tie Gridiron Dinner in March. This is in Bob Woodward's book, by the way. Oh. And the joke goes like this. We've made enormous progress on the wall. All the drawings are done. All the excavating's done. All the engineering is done. The only thing we've been stumbling with is... We haven't been able to figure out how to stretch the word Trump 1,200 miles, but uh, <laughs> President Trump threw it out and wouldn't use it. You know, all the metaphors and all the, they make the fun of him, you know, right. are, are things that he doesn't do right? Uh, rather than the things that he does do, which there's plenty of material there. I'm mm -hmm. not, not discounting that. Okay, Bill, here's our big advertising opportunity. Are you ready? I'm ready. This could change the face of better than before right here. Okay. NASA will probably sell naming rights on rockets. The constant creep of corporate America into all aspects of everyday life may soon conquer a new frontier, the final frontier. This is in the Washington Post today. NASA Administrator Jim Bredenstein has directed the space agency to look at boosting its brand by selling naming rights to rockets and spacecraft and allow its astronauts to appear in commercials and on cereal boxes as if they were celebrity athletes. Well, they kind of are celebrities. Mm -hmm. When I was growing up, all the astronauts were celebrities. Absolutely. Shepard and Armstrong and Glenn and all those guys, I thought they were heroes and celebrities. Uh, you ever see those ticker tape parades those guys were in? I mean, they were huge. Oh, uh, yeah. I forgot about the, those. The newsreels, anyway. 
Officials stress that nothing's been decided. The idea could mark a giant cultural leap for the taxpayer-funded government agency and could run into ethics regulations that prevent government officials from using public office for private gain. Are you kidding me? Hmm. Astronauts may be the most venerated employees in the federal government, but they're still civil servants bound by regulations, they say. Here goes Space Rocket number 12, sponsored by Better Than Before. (laughs) Mark Zuckerberg is straining to corral his baby. As Facebook has grown, Mark Zuckerberg and his executives adopted a core belief that even if people criticized our decisions, they would eventually come around to see it our way. And for years that was true, and Facebook reveled in its power. Zuckerberg was convinced that he was ahead of the users, not at odds with the users. It no longer is, of course, as Facebook faces blowback from users and government around the world. As Facebook has expanded, so did its blind spots. Evan Osnos in the New Yorker magazine had a series of conversations with Zuckerberg over the summer at his house, at his office, and by phone, and came away with unsparing insights into the challenges facing this most consequential of creations, Facebook, and its creator, Zuckerberg. He says, I found Zuckerberg straining, not always coherently, to grasp problems for which he was not very prepared. These are not technical puzzles to be cracked in the middle of the night, but some of the subtlest aspects of human affairs, including the meaning of truth, the limits of free speech, and the origins of violence. Zuckerberg is now at the center of a full-fledged debate about the moral character of Silicon Valley and the conscience of its leaders. To avoid further crises, he will have to embrace the fact that he's now a protector of the peace, not a disruptor of it. Here's the bottom line. Zuckerberg's not 35 yet, and the ambition for which he built his empire could well be directed toward shoring up his company, his country, and his personal name. The question is not whether Zuckerberg has the power to fix Facebook, but whether or not he actually wants to. Hmm. Oh, here's some good news. Blue-collar jobs have surged in the Trump strongholds. Blue-collar jobs are growing at their fastest rate in more than 30 years, helping fuel a hiring boom in many small towns and rural areas that are strong supporters of President Trump ahead of November's midterm elections, says the Washington Post. Jobs in goods-producing industries, mining, construction, manufacturing, grew 3.3% in the year preceding July, the best rate since 1984, according to Washington Post. Blue-collar jobs, long a small and shrinking part of the U.S. economy, are now growing at a faster clip than those in the nation's much larger service economy. The rapid hiring in blue-collar sectors is delivering benefits to areas that turned out heavily for Trump in the 2016 election. According to the Brookings Institution, a shift from earlier in this expansion when large and mid-sized cities experienced most of the gains. Finally, on a sad note, Chinese officials are burning Bibles. Chinese government is ratcheting up a crackdown on Christian congregations in Beijing and several provinces, destroying crosses, burning Bibles, shutting churches and ordering followers to sign papers renouncing their faith, according to pastors and a group that monitors religion in China. This comes from the Associated Press. Under President Xi, China's most powerful leader since Mao, 
Religious believers are seeing their freedom shrink dramatically even as the country undergoes a religious revival. Experts and activists say that as he consolidates his power, Z is waging the most severe systematic suppression of Christianity in the country since religious freedom was written in the Chinese constitution in 1982. And it's not just Christians. One million members of Muslim minority groups in the country's northwest have been arbitrarily detained in indoctrination camps where they are forced to denounce Islam. I wonder why. I don't know. Yeah. I thought uh, all that was breaking loose and right. we didn't have that as much anymore, but I guess we do. All right. So what do you got on the cashless society? Yeah. America is moving closer to being cashless. A few facts. Um, 7% of the transactions between 2010 and 2015, cash uh, transactions sank 7%. What do you, how much cash do you carry? I have none on me right now. Normally, though. I mean, just on an average day. Maybe 20 bucks. Yeah. I hardly carry that much. Yeah. Now, I, I got some cash for when I went on vacation and uh, carried that, I think, $100. Well, how many, um, what, what, what do you think the percentage of cash transactions are? Gosh, I don't have any idea. Do you think it's half or do you think it's less than half? Of 100? Out of 100%. 7%. 35% are still uh, oh, wow. cash transactions. I, I shot way low. Yeah. I'm way out there, Bill. Way ahead. Well, it's dropping quickly. So a third. Right. And uh, another thing, uh, ATMs had their 50th birthday uh, last year. Wow. So people aren't going to them as much. Right. And they're 50 years old. And they're 50 years old. And I thought this was an interesting stat. 7% of the U.S. population don't use banks. Really? Yeah. What do they use to keep their money? I'm guessing a mattress. Does credit unions count? I think so. Yeah, 7, 7% are cash only. Well, here's an interesting stat, and then uh, we'll go and we'll have our special guest today. During the first 18 months of the Trump administration, nearly 1,600 workers have left the EPA. Mm-hmm. Fewer than 400 were hired. This comes from the Washington Post. The exodus has shrunk the agency's workforce by 8% to levels not seen since the wet Reagan administration. Well, that's a management technique. When you really don't want to fire employees, do it by attrition. So when they leave, you don't hire their replacement. You just try to go on without them, especially if you're over budget. Right. Or you have a deficit by a trillion dollars. So um, good. I'm I'm glad they're not replacing those people. That should probably be across the board in most government agencies because we can't pay for it. Right. Yeah, we're in debt. Yeah. And uh, we're having tax cuts. Uh, that's why the federal budget is lower, uh, because we can't afford some of the stuff. So good job there. All right. Desiree Owen is coming up next. She's been my friend for 36 years. I'm going to ask her to tell everybody on the podcast, what was Tony Richards like in the 80s? Uh, And that'll be an interesting answer. We'll see what she says. Should be fun. So Desiree is coming up uh, next on Better Than Before. Do you apologize for your behavior? Are you constantly worrying about what others think about you or frequently criticize yourself? Self-esteem affects everything we do and is one of the key indicators of success in business. Tony's new self-esteem workshop will help you develop the tools necessary to empower you to overcome the pressure and unfamiliarity of professional and personal circumstances. Through Tony's guidance, you'll learn how to perceive threats and vulnerabilities to better prepare for challenging situations, resolve the baggage that keeps you back, 
and improve self-esteem when you need it most. Join us on September 20th for this one-day self-esteem workshop. Space is limited. Don't let low self-esteem hold you back from living the life you'd like to live. Register online now at clearvisiondevelopment.com. Welcome back to another edition of Better Than Before. I'm Tony Richards. And one of the things that I thought about doing when I first started thinking about doing this podcast is I'd like to have some of my old friends on, and especially those of them that are doing some pretty cool stuff right now. And so I'm really excited because I've got a friend, and my relationship with her goes back 36 years, if you can believe that. She is a Kentucky resident, and of course, I'm from Kentucky, and that's how we met in 1982, and Desiree Owen is on the show today. Hi, Desiree. Well, hello there. How are you? I'm doing pretty good, and I'm so excited that you're here today because I want to talk to you about several other things that you've done in your career, and maybe we can tell some old stories, and and I want to ask you about your campaign that you've got going on right now for office and a bunch of stuff that's going on in the Bluegrass State. All right. So 1982, that is my first memory of us meeting. Do you remember that? I absolutely do, yes. I remember the first time I saw you. We both worked for Bristol Broadcasting. And when did you start? Um, well, in 1982, because I graduated from college, and that was my first job. Well, I remember it was the summer, because you were doing this thing called Lake Patrol. Yes. You would go to Kentucky and Barkley Lake and go to all the events, and we would have a remote broadcast. I worked weekends uh, back then a lot, so we would be together on the weekends, and you'd come pick up the van and take it down to the lakes area, and you would be at all these If it was a wet rag at a brand new car wash, you'd be there and report on it. And I I don't know what you first thought when when you saw me, but the first time I saw you, I thought, we're not going to be able to keep this girl very long. I mean, this this girl is really good, and she's really, really pretty, and she's going to go to TV. But we ended up working a long time together. Yes, we did. And I really enjoyed that time we had together. We were such a family there. Yep. And the friendships that developed and the people we met over the years in so many different ways, whether it be through the news stories I covered or the people we met in the music industry, it was just an incredible experience. What what was one of the most uh, memorable things? And I know you'll have to think about this for a second to make sure that you change the names to protect the innocent. But <laughs> what was one of the most memorable things that happened to you back in that era Oh, my gosh, there were so many. Of course, I I covered a lot of memorable events in court, some famous murder trials. And personally, one of the things that makes me chuckle every time I hear one of our old friends that still works at the station to this day, Uh who's now a a semi-famous morning show person, is when he was first hired as the uh, Q Rabbit mascot. Do you remember this? you know who I'm talking about? Oh, yeah. You had to wear the rabbit suit. Yes, in the rabbit suit. And his first day in the rabbit suit was an extremely hot summer day at a remote. And he got so hot that he threw up and passed out. And I thought we had killed the (laughs) rabbit for sure. And I didn't know how we were going to explain that. 
to them when we got back to well the anybody station. who's ever worn one of those mascot suits any of them i mean if you go out especially in the summertime and you go to a parade or you go to a county fair or something like that, i mean it gets hot in there yes it does extremely hot it was probably 200 degrees in there i think eventually they ended up like little fans in there and little vents but those early ones man it was the just, early ones yeah were rough like wearing a bearskin rug around kind of crazy <laughs> So I asked the staff around here if they had any particular questions. Because, you know, they all wonder what I was like back then. So what was Tony Richards like in the 1980s? You were absolutely adorable and so charming. Wow. Yeah, and one of my best memories, and I can still hear to this day, is when I was preparing for a newscast. And I think you were working mornings. And anyway, you knew I loved Sam Elliott's voice. And you would sneak up behind me and whisper in my ear in a Sam Elliott voice and just send shivers down my spine to the point I could barely get through the newscast. <laughs> do you watch The Ranch now at all? I do. I do. Yeah, Sam Elliott's still going strong. Yeah, he is. <laughs> Darling. I, I don't know if I can still do it as well as I could do it back then, well, but I could do it back then. <laughs> yeah, we uh, we worked at Bristol Broadcasting, and then later on, uh, when I was in management over at across um, the, the road there, I ended up hiring you and Paula Whiteloff both yes. to come over and, and make up the news department. Paula was always excellent also. And you and I spent some time doing some afternoons, and then we moved to the morning show, and we just had an absolute blast. And then every now and then on Facebook, you know, I'll get someone who remembers those days and will send me an email. And when I listen to podcasts, uh, and I listen to people that I know, and I know a lot about them, and people ask them about stuff in their careers and they can't remember I get really, really frustrated with them. But then when somebody will ask me about something we did back then, I'm like, yeah, sounds like something we'd do, but I don't yeah. remember. <laughs> you know, I find when I'm on the campaign trail, so many people say, I know you because you were on the radio. And like you said, it's been several years since I was on the air. So it's kind of fun to see them reconnect to those times. One of the most popular things we did, of course, was the the farm report, right. which they no longer do, and the farmer of the day, you know, with our red man reaction satisfaction. That's it. What'd you do after you left radio? I left. I, I, I did eventually turn down that job in, in uh, TV, as you mentioned earlier, because I got competing job offers. I was offered the job of uh, public relations at what was then PCC, Paducah Community College. And uh, after that, I went to tourism marketing. I was executive director of Kentucky's Western Waterland, responsible for about 14 counties down here in Western Kentucky. And I remember that now. And my office is at Grand Rivers. And then I went to the Kentucky Tourism Council out of Louisville, covering the entire state, uh, which was also a rewarding job. And then I had the opportunity to become the executive director of what was then the Four Rivers Center, which became the Carson Center, which is the Performing Arts Center in downtown Paducah. You know, I want to back up here for just a second while we're talking about the waterlands and, and stuff like that. You know how much I love that area. Oh, Two yes. or three times a year, that's my escape. I still love to go down to Kentucky Lake and Barkley Lake, and I get so much refreshment 
out of going down there for a weekend or two and just relaxing and, you know, not thinking too much about much of anything and just spending some time. And it just, and I guess, you know, growing up there has a lot to do with it. I'm originally from Livingston County. You grew up in Lyon County, both of which are right there bordering the lakes area. I mean, I know you live in Ballard County now, but does that area still hold that special thing for you? Oh, it certainly does. I grew up in Catala. Well, my family and I spent all of our time on the water. We had boats all the time. We uh, did that every weekend. And as soon as I got old enough, I spent all my free time down at Okatala Beach. So I am happiest when I'm looking at the water. Man, that Catawba has blown up in the last 25 years. Yeah. I mean, yeah. I can't believe it sometimes when I go down there. I was just uh, condos and development. And it's just I'm so happy that that area has done so well. Oh, yes, yes. I don't know if it's changed to your satisfaction, you know, being from there, but I really am happy that people have invested in it and grown it, and a lot of people live there. It's got to be good for the local economy anyway. Oh, yes, I think so, and and I'm especially glad they preserved some of the old towns. You know, Okotala is still there with their beautiful homes as well as old Eddieville. And so... Then you're talking about the uh, Four River Center, the Carson Center, which is a beautiful facility in downtown Paducah where they have concert acts there. They have the telethon there, which is a big deal. The telethon has been going on since we were born on WPSD, which is the NBC television station there in Paducah. I did a seminar and a speech there a few years back. It's just a great facility. And you were one of the driving forces to raise money to have that built, right? That's correct. When I came on board with them, they had a committee. They didn't even have a board of directors. They only had a committee that was formed out of the Paducah Chamber of Commerce. And they had decided that, yes, this is where we want to go. But they had no plan for um, essentially raising the funds necessary. So we had to take a good, long, hard look at it and decide how best to proceed and make it not just a Paducah project, but a regional project, because it was important to the entire area, because I was especially happy with the fact that we could bring in our uh, school children from around the region to see professional live theater and music, which up until then was extremely difficult for kids to do. They had to drive to St. Louis or nashville to get that kind of experience so i was glad to have it here in western kentucky and what year did that get built uh, i think we opened in uh 2003 i believe yeah late 2003 that's a great great complex uh great facility there right there on the riverfront yes it was a tough battle really because although there was a group of people that did want it to happen all of a sudden they realized i had made headway into getting the necessary state funding to get it done. And then that's when I think some people in the community woke up and said, wow, what are we doing? The original price tag was supposed to be $20 million, and the next thing you know, we're looking at $40 million. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> Well, that, that tends to happen in a project uh, you know, like that. In fact, I went to Governor Patton at the time and told him, I said, I know I came to you and originally asked for 20 but I think we're going to need more. And he said, don't worry about it. He said, uh, I'm building a convention center in Pike County right now, and that's just the way things go, like you said, with these projects. He said, we'll, we'll get it done. And we did some creative things with state funding uh, along that line. I, I went to 
Marshall County Judge Executive Mike Miller, who was a legend down here in Western Kentucky. I asked him for advice, as I had many times before. And he called 14 county judges together in Western Kentucky, and he asked them to go back to their fiscal courts and pass a resolution saying they would not ask for anything for their own counties until we got the money for the Four Rivers Center at that legislative session, which was huge. I mean, we don't see that kind of cooperation in government now. And because of that one move, we were able to get the full $20 million in state funding and figure out the rest from there. You know, I was thinking about a story, and this story I hadn't thought about in years, but it came to me back last spring. You and I, my wife, and Lou Jaton got to have lunch together. And we were talking about old times and stuff. And I don't remember. It must have been somewhere around 1983 or 1984. But just to give you an idea of our professional attitude at all times (laughs) in, in the broadcasting business, Desiree's doing the news. And I sneak into the newsroom and set her news copy on fire. Yeah, yes. And, <laughs> and she's trying to read the news story before it burns up. And to her credit, no one ever knew who was listening to the radio that the news that she was reading to them was was rapidly burning up uh, right in her hands with a flaming blaze and she just says you know that's the news i'm desiree owen and boom she's out and then the the news copy was like was just smoke at that point (laughs) but we used to have just a a ball together oh i also remember and i believe it was on paula whitelaw's who was paula kingsley at the time it was yep. her birthday, and I believe I, I brought in a balloon male stripper kind of thing. I on. remember that. I remember yeah, that. Yeah, right. So while she's doing the news, the stripper's in there. And, it, I mean, yeah, it was hysterical. We could do things like that. You know what's funny, though? You know, we can talk about that kind of stuff, and we had a bunch of fun. Yes. But I still think that we held ourselves to very high professional standards. We did. We had very good examples uh, of leadership and, of course, working for Gary Morse and people like that who were just consummate professionals. You had to be pretty good, I mean, in order to to be there. And the, the focus was always on how can you get better. Right. I, I agree with that. I find that a little lacking in our current news media situation, not to cast aspersions on anyone in particular at all, but I just find an erosion of that vision, if you would, of why you're doing the news and how you could be better at it. I I find that disturbing. I think it, uh, what our local news media now is doing is just picking up weird stories off the internet from 14 states away and put it out as local news because it's sensational. You know, I was really, especially after I moved to Missouri and some in Kentucky, but in the early 90s when the FCC changed their rules and regulations and we were able to own everything on the planet. At the time when we were doing all that merging and consolidation and I really didn't know what it was going to lead to. And I hate to be the old fogey that says it's not as good as it used to be when we were doing it, but the automation and uh, the reduction in personnel and the 
I mean, I think that probably has contributed to the talent level maybe going down just a little bit just because we all had competition for our jobs back then. It was really competitive, and it just doesn't seem to be that way as much anymore just because not as many people want to be in that part of it. Now half the people who work in the building are not on the air. They're doing other stuff. They're managing the website or the social media or stuff like that. Right. And I think there was a dedication, at least to all the people we worked with in the newsroom, was a dedication to the actual goal of journalism. Oh, sure. Being a true journalist, being fair to both sides, not being right or left. And all of a sudden, we've got this discussion about fake news, biased media, and we just didn't have that. I mean, we went so far, and I I did. Mm -hmm. No one knew what my party was. I didn't advertise that fact. I didn't go to political events other than to be a reporter. I didn't want people to know who I voted for or anything about my personal views on any issue. That was not my job. Right. My job was to report the news that was presented to me, you know, as an event. Well, back then, it seemed like we had news anchors and reporters who were doing what you just described. And then we had commentators, and we didn't have many. Right. But the commentators would give their opinions on things. And now it just seems like that's all we have is commentators. We don't really have journalists as much. I agree. I agree. I see it all the time. I'm like, I would never put my opinion like that into a news story. I mean, I hear it. I see it. Are you able to talk at all about the the duck retreat? You mean the duck club? Yeah. Yeah, sure. So what what are you doing with that? Well, I've got my Marine down there working on it right now. <laughs> <laughs> we spend about 300 some odd days of the year trying to get ready for the 60 days of duck season that we have here. Ballard County is world famous for duck hunting. It is. It's right smack in the middle of the Mississippi Flyway. So it's, uh, we get a lot of ducks. And so you guys are putting together uh, this place down there where, and I'm going to still come sometime and bring some of my executive clients down who love to duck hunt. But tell me a little bit about, I've seen some pictures on Facebook, but just tell us a little bit about that. Well, it's 156 acres in the Barlow River Bottoms. So it's very close to the river, and it's completely surrounded by Kentucky Fish and Wildlife. So we virtually have no private competitors as far as duck hunting goes. It's taken several years for us to develop that property uh, to its potential, and it's not quite there. I mean, it's great hunting, but it's taken a lot of work to get it there. It involved uh, building levees and roads and uh, installing two powerful wells to flood the corn so we can do that sort of hunting from floating blinds and then to flood the timber that we have on the property to do more Arkansas style hunting from behind a tree. Oh, cool. And for people who don't know, it's just a rock's throw from where the Mississippi and Ohio rivers come together. Yes. Yes. Just down the road there at Cairo. So should be a great place to go if you're a duck hunter. You need to follow up with Desiree and, and, and go down there and visit them and have fun sometime. So you're running for office now. So tell us about the office you're running for and about your campaign and everything. Well, of course, I lived in Paducah for many years, dating back to when we were all talking about the old days at the radio station. Mm-hmm. After building the Carson Center and getting that to completion, I met this guy he was a native of ballard county and talked me into moving down here and buying this farm i thoroughly enjoyed it. i loved it i completely left 
public life, more or less. I had also worked in Frankfurt as a lobbyist and ran several political campaigns, but I was kind of done with that. And so I wanted to focus on something new, and, and here it is. So I was going along with the, happy with the ducks down here, and then all oh, about a year ago, at the 2017 Fancy Farm Picnic events, uh, people started talking to me about or suggesting that I might want to run for office in the 1st District for the House of Representatives. When the 1st District covers Ballard, Fulton, Carlisle, Hickman, and a part of McCracken County. Uh, all the four counties down here, including Ballard, are typically called the river counties because we're all on the river. And as a resident, I think they thought I could uh, represent the voters well. And I considered it, and I was honored, but I thought, well, I'm just too busy with all the other things we're doing. And then as the legislative session began in Frankfurt this year, I kept getting more calls as things began to sort of devolve into a dysfunctional mess. I got calls from Frankfurt. I got calls from local people. Please reconsider your decision because we need you to run. You know, my mother was a retired teacher, and I was terribly disappointed in what they'd done with the now infamous sewer bill, as they called it, House Bill 51, uh, that was going to hurt our teachers and our retired teachers. One of our local state representatives, who we know and is also an educator, finally called me the day before the filing deadline, and I was really had just come out of the duck blind. And he said, I really need you to do this. He said, I want you to fill out your papers today, and I will drive them to Frankfurt tomorrow for you so you don't have to miss another day in the duck blind. <laughs> <laughs> and so I said, okay, buddy, you got it. And that's when I decided to do it. Man, he knew just how to, what to say, didn't he? He did. He made it easy for me. <laughs> and so you're running now, and I see your uh, pictures on Facebook all the time. I saw you at the pancake breakfast the other day, and all kinds of stuff like that. So is it a pretty strong schedule doing all that, right? Yes. Um, I find down here that is important to meet all your voters and talk to them and get a sense of what they're thinking. And it's been a complete joy, really, to meet people I have not met before outside of the duck world, I guess. You know, our local teachers, our local farmers, local union members, it's been great fun talking to them and getting their point of view because it's my opinion that if you're going to be a representative, you should be a true representative. And that means representing their views yeah. and not my own. And so you're running for representative for the first district, right? Correct. And I mean, I think the founding fathers had that in mind when they set the terms for both the federal and state levels for two years in this job of House of Representatives. It's not to make a political career out of it. It is to be someone in your community that's willing to go up there and give two years of the time and, and come back home and let somebody else have a shot at it. Well, I really, you know, and I've told you this before, but I want to tell you this just so everybody can hear it. I, I think you'd be fabulous in it. If that's what you want, that's what I want. And I, I know you'd do a good job because I know how much you love people. Well, thank you so much, Tony. I really appreciate that. I got 12 real fast rapid fire questions I'm going to ask you. So, oh my gosh. Okay. So, so don't think about it too much, but I, I, I'm not th some people consider them easy. And, okay. You know, if don't, don't, don't get too hung up on them, but wh what is the, and this is overall memory, but what is the best memory that comes to mind for you? 
the best memory of like out of all time? Yeah. Well, I have so many good memories. It's hard to pick one because I've been fortunate to have a wonderful life, by the way. But maybe I'll just go back to the Sam Elliott voice in my ear. How about that? (laughs) Okay. We should have got that recorded for you. (laughs) Okay. Number two, uh, what's the number? Who's the number one hero in your life? Sam Elliott. No, just kidding. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, I'd have to say my father was actually. My father was a, a Union iron worker. He was a World War II veteran, Navy veteran. I came along sort of late in life for my parents, but my dad had no fear. And uh, obviously working several hundred feet up in the air every day, risking your life was an example of that. And he worked hard all his life. He taught me a work ethic, as did my mother. But he encouraged me uh, to be a journalist, as a matter of fact. He would uh, take a current events quiz with me every week out of the Paducah Sun newspaper, and uh, he expected me to pass it. And he told me that I didn't have to take a back seat to anyone. If there was something I wanted to do, then I should go for it, and he would support me completely, and he did. That's great. What's the top value you subscribe to? Work hard at the job you've been given and be kind. Be as kind to the janitor as you do the CEO. Yeah. Who's the most important person in your life? I would have to say David. He stepped up to the plate and supported me over 100% in this endeavor of running for office. I jokingly call him my Marine bodyguard and driver, but basically (laughs) that's what he does. He he goes with me everywhere and supports me. David reminds me of my dad. He doesn't say a lot, but when he does, it's important. Yes, that's true. (laughs) (laughs) What is your favorite thing in the whole world? Being on the lake. What's your favorite food? Any seafood. Most beautiful place you've ever been to? Montana. That was when you did. Is that when you went on the Longmire trip? Well, we used to go every year. Of course, we haven't had time to even go to the lake this summer because of the campaign, but we often went out west every year and took a grand tour, as we called it, spending two weeks or more out there. But yeah, that that's one of my favorite places to be. Um, big, huge fan of Longmire. Yeah. But the Longmire trip, that's. It's Wyoming, but it's right on the border of Montana. Okay. If you could describe success in one word, what would that word be? Oh, happiness. How do you want to be remembered? As a faithful and loyal friend. Advice for a younger Desiree. <laughs> oh, me. Choose your boyfriends wisely, I guess. I don't know. <laughs> what's your favorite sound? The boat motor. And what's the best lesson you've learned? <sighs> best lesson I've learned. You can't trust everybody. There you go. So what's if I want to find out more about your campaign and I live in Kentucky and Especially, I live in the first district. Do you have a website and stuff that they can I go do. to? I do. My website is DesireeInTheFirst.com. And then you can also find me on Facebook. It's Owen First in the First on Facebook. That's awesome. Well, listen, I you know how much I appreciate you. And I'm so glad we've stayed friends for 36 years. Me too, honey. I wouldn't trade those friendships we made in radio for anything in the world. 
Desiree Owens, she's running for representative in the 1st District of Kentucky, and uh, I've enjoyed having her on today, and I will have more for you next on Better Than Before. Hi, I'm Dave Drain. And I'm Dan Burks. And we're the owners of University Subaru. As a locally owned business, we care for our community. We know how important it is to give back because we grew up here and we raised our family here. This is our home. Which means we care for customers like we care for the community. University Subaru, your truly locally owned dealer. From here. Been here. And we will always be here for you. Such a good conversation with an old friend of mine, Desiree Owen, who's running for office down in Western Kentucky. And so good to talk to her about old times and have her on the show today and just hear her perspective uh, as she runs for office and reminisce and go down memory lane. And that was a great conversation. I really enjoyed that. Okay, so we're, let's get into listener questions. So it's been a while since we've done a question segment. We have piled up quite a few listener questions, and I'm going to take these one at a time. If you'd like to submit a business or leadership question to us, you can do so. The email address is info at clearvisiondevelopment.com. And uh, send it to us. We'll read your question on the air and do our best to give you some kind of answer. Here's question number one. Can you talk a little bit about succession planning? I'm a family member in business with some of my relatives. How hard is it to put a succession plan together? And what are the benefits of having one? Well, you've got a little bit more of a complicated situation than usual because it's a family business and uh, you're a family member. So let's see. The question is, how hard is it to put a succession plan together? And what are the benefits of having? Okay, so we got two questions kind of phrased as one. How hard is it to put a succession plan together? It depends on how hard it is to get everybody to agree. So um, you just do what's best for the business to ensure its longevity. And it doesn't say how long the business has been around. Doesn't say what kind of business it is. But it's it's your responsibility to treat that asset as such as it will produce for you as much as possible into the future. As Warren Buffett says, the value of any asset is how much cash will it produce for you between now and judgment day. So your responsibility is to ensure that you do the best you can for that business so that it is sustainable to produce cash for you. And if it's family ownership, it sounds like, uh, produce cash for your employees and for uh, jobs for your employees and cash for your family. What are the benefits of having a succession plan? Well, so everybody knows what the plan is. I could tell you some really, really bad horror stories about family businesses that didn't have any formal succession plan, or even if they did have one, people disagreed with it and didn't want to abide by it. I was personally involved in a very successful family business that had to be split up among family members because they couldn't agree on uh, succession. And so uh, they all went their separate ways. And uh, it was a very, very nice and profitable company that was a very much a big shame that we had to split it up. But 
I mean, that happens sometimes. Uh, So the benefits of having a succession plan is you have a plan. You know what's going to happen as people retire or as people leave to go do other things or, God forbid, somebody passes away. You just have it all lined out and you have a plan for what's going to happen, how power is going to be distributed, how it's going to be shared, who's going to manage what, and who's going to have the final say and all those kinds of things. It's good to have those discussions, get those things hammered out so you aren't laying in bed at night wondering what's going to happen now that grandpa is retiring and nobody knows who's going to be taken over. Uh, This person says, I'm fascinated by the piece you did a couple of weeks ago on assessments in business. I've taken the disc a couple of times, but I was intrigued to learn that there are other deeper assessments available. What, in your opinion, is the most valuable assessment? Well, my opinion, the most valuable assessment is multiple assessments because there is no one total assessment that gives you every data reading on a talent that you could possibly use. So if you have budget constraints, then you have to decide uh, which assessment's going to tell you the most about what you want to know. Personally, uh, I love looking at the acumen because um, that has kind of been my calling card as a CEO coach to my CEO clients about evaluating the talent of a person uh, in the succession plan or in the hiring process. The acumen can tell us what the total potential of a person is, and it can tell us at what level they are executing on that potential today. And then it gives us a gap analysis on what we need to work on in order to close those gaps so that person can be performing at their highest potential. So if they have the potential to be the most valuable player in your business, but they aren't executing on that today and they have some holes in their execution, uh, we can work with them and help them put a development plan together to close those gaps. And uh, they can be a lot more productive They can be producing a lot more on their potential and have a lot higher performance. So um, I love the acumen piece, but there are other elements and other assessments that tell you other things that are very valuable as well. Good question. Thanks for sending that in. Uh, This person says, do you recommend exit interviews? Aren't they negative most of the time? Well, they can be. I mean, there are reasons why people leave. And I've heard it said often that people do not leave companies, they leave managers or they leave bosses. So hardly ever does a very happy person leave a company if they're happy with everything. Uh, Now, there are extenuating circumstances, you know, maybe they're moving to be near family, maybe they're Maybe their spouse got a job that was more lucrative in another part of the country. And uh, if everything's been great with that person, they're going to give your company a good review when they leave because they're not leaving under bad circumstances. However, most of the time, people do have insights into things that can be done better or improved on uh, when they leave, especially if they have a propensity for being honest with you. Um, The exit interview is really, there's no reason why a person wouldn't be honest with you because they're leaving. I mean, what's the worst thing can happen to them afterwards? So 
there's no fear of retribution or retaliation or anything like that. So I find exit interviews valuable. I, I think there's something valuable to be gained in every one of them. I, I don't know if everything you learn in an exit interview is valuable, but I've never really done an executive interview or an exit interview with somebody that I didn't pick up one or two valuable pieces of information. This person says, how do you know when you need to hire another manager to help you? Well, a lot of times it's based on the amount of people that you manage. So most people can manage around seven direct reports, high performance managers who have a lot of skill sets and they're really, really good might be able to manage 10, but 10 would be the extreme limit. And I get nervous when somebody manages over seven because it's pretty difficult to give people the attention that they deserve and that they desire uh, when you have that many direct reports, especially if you're meeting with them on a regular basis and you're giving them a lot of feedback and they're managing up to you. So if you've got 10 people all managing up to you, you're going to be smothered in emails and uh, updates and all that. So uh, that's one way. The other way is something I call the 60% rule. That rule is whatever you are finding that's most important that you need to be doing, you need to be able to devote at least 60% of your focus to that. So let's say you have a very successful business and you're thinking about starting a new subsidiary to that business. Well, your focus on that initial business cannot shrink below 60% or you're going to take your eye off the ball and you're going to shift your focus over to the new launch of the new business and the former business is going to suffer. So in this case, uh, I call that the, you've got to find a driving force. So you've got to find somebody who is capable enough to spend at least 60% of their time and focus on that new venture, on that new division, or even on a new project. Let's say you want to start a new project. So for example, here, I really wanted to put a focus on content marketing. So our primary focus is being a coach to our clients and providing advice to our clients. But we also have to work on things in our company. For example, producer Bill. He spends 60% of his time on producing some kind of content and nothing else. Sandy Steves, who is our content special projects manager, spends 60% of her time working on social media and on our content. I spend 60% of my time and more on working with clients. So whenever you get something that's going to get your main focus dipped below 60 you need to be able to shift 60% of focus off on that new project, new business. Bill is the driving force for us in production. Sandy is the driving force for us in content. And Whitney is the driving force in project management. So you got to find people who can take those initiatives and put at least 60% of their focus on it. This person says, how do you qualify or identify a growth opportunity for a business? Well, here's the way I will kind of do it. So if it helps somebody. So if there's a chance to put a smile on somebody's face, solve somebody's problem, fix something for someone, there's a need in the market that isn't being served today, there's a growth opportunity. Another one is if there is a potential for a big market. So if a person is in pain and they've got a big enough problem, 
then they will pay to make themselves happy. People don't buy drills, uh, they buy holes. They don't really want to drill, they want to drill a hole. And the drill just happens to be the thing that solves the problem. So if there's a big enough market out there for people who want to pay for it, that could be a growth opportunity. If you have the right skills in your company, if your company can design, if they can build, if they can distribute, if they can service, then that kind of integration is natural. Then that is a growth opportunity. And then finally, if it it gives you some kind of competitive advantage in the marketplace, if it widens your moat around your empire, if you can get ahead of your current and potential competition in the race to make people happy in that marketplace, and it's going to increase your competitive advantage, I would do it then. So if there's an opportunity to help folks, if there's a big enough market segment, if you have the right skills that would match up, let's say you have a coffee shop and you decide to get into the yoga exercise business. To me, those skill sets do not overlap. You would be outside your core competencies in order to do that. But if you owned a coffee shop and then you decided to open a donut shop right next door, that kind of integration would make sense because the skills overlap and offering that donut along with your coffee might give you a competitive advantage over somebody who was only offering coffee. This person's asking, can our company grow faster by selling to existing customers or by selling to new customers? That's a hard one. Depends on what kind of company it is and it depends on what you're selling. Most of the time, the rule is it's easier to sell more to existing customers than it is to sell new to new customer because the customers you have are already used to your business. They're already used to you. They trust you. They put a lot of faith in you and it would be slightly easier to give them an additional offering uh, for, for purchase than it would be to convince someone who's never done business with you before to buy something new. Uh, that's a whole different trust and value proposition that you have to put out there in order to do that. So it's hard to answer the question without knowing exactly what kind of business and product you're talking about. But the rule of thumb generally is it's easier to sell something to customer you already have than it is to sell something to a new customer. It takes a lot to acquire a customer. So you might want to figure out your cost of acquisition for a customer, what that costs you, what the average customer spend with you, and um, those kinds of things. So you could better analyze that whole uh, problem for your business. A couple more here. This person asks, which is the most important to your organization, mission, core values, or vision? So collectively, that's called your core ideology. They're all important, and I don't know if any of them are more important than the other. I will tell you the one that's most difficult to manage and lead and keep intact, and to me, that is core values. Mission, that is something that's ongoing all the time. That's a destination that you never quite get to. Vision is something that you can see from where you are, but it's going to be very difficult to get there. And vision changes every three to five years. You come up with a new vision for your business, a new challenge or something like that. The mission hardly ever changes and the core values hardly ever change, although they can change 
if you think that uh, there's a new one. Uh, usually I advise uh, clients, if you're going to add a new core value, get rid of an old one. Core values need to be spelled out so employees know exactly what you mean by words like integrity and honor and innovative. Uh, what does that look like in behavior? How can I take action on that? Because the core values are really your code of ethics. They're really the guideline and framework by which you're going to operate. And it's how you're going to treat each other in the workplace. It's how you're going to treat vendors and it's how you're going to treat customers. So when you look at the company and you look at how the people in that company conduct themselves and behave, you should see the list of core values. And unfortunately, sometimes you have people, I talked about this when we had Denise Yan on the podcast a couple of weeks ago, I was at a four-way stop and this branded logoed vehicle pulled out of the four-way stop and shot me the bird. And I don't think that's probably a core value <laughs> in that company. I do buy things at that particular company location. Is one of your core values, we flip off customers? Probably not. So core values are some of the ones that those rules of behavior get violated. And that's, that's pretty common. It's a laborious full-time job sometimes for managers to keep those core values intact and to manage back to those core values. So I would say they're all important, but I would say the most difficult thing in leadership and management is the core values part, making sure that your people are abiding by them and not operating outside of them. Last question, to what do you attribute your success? I'd say four things. And if you ask me this question tomorrow, I might say four different things. But this is what I'm going to say today. Because the first one comes to mind immediately. And that's being relentlessly positive. There are all kinds of opportunities in business and in life to be negative. And I do fall into those traps from time to time. I'm not going to lie. Everybody does. Everybody who's a human being falls into those traps from time to time, but I constantly try to say that I'm relentlessly positive. I really try to, at a relentless pace, to look at the good side of things, to try to be positive, to look for learning opportunities, uh, to look at uh, failures and uh, stub toes as a chance to get better. And I try to look at the bright side because a lot of times when one door closes, another door opens and it's just kind of been that way for my whole career. We lose clients from time to time, sometimes because we want to, sometimes because we don't want to. And when we lose one that we don't want to, there is a great temptation to be upset because you feel like you've given that client your best. And then uh, maybe somebody else has come along and uh, had sweeter candy and more nice flowers. And uh, they decided to go with somebody else. And that can bother you uh, because you've taken ownership in it. And one thing I can say about our company is we act like owners. If we're working with a company on their project, we act like we work there. We act like we own that company. We take it very seriously. And it's just like it was our own company. And we do the level work that's appropriate for it. But being relentlessly positive, I'd say, is one thing. Another thing I'd say is I'm ruthlessly persistent. I'm like a dog in a bone. I will not give up on something. If I really believe in it, I will stick with it. And I will do it 
until I just convince myself that it's the wrong thing or we shouldn't do it anymore. But as long as I think it's the right thing to do, I will be ruthless in persisting toward that goal or toward that project or toward that initiative, whatever it is, uh, I'm going to be persistent. One of my favorite quotes is that diligence creates destiny. So I will try to be very, very diligent toward everything we do because it is a component or a piece of all of our destinies who work at our company. Uh, I would say my focus is really good. Uh, Once I get focused on something, I know the rule of focus. And if you've read my book, The Big Idea, you know the rule of focus. Whatever you focus on gets bigger and whatever you focus on gets you, right? And so I'm very careful with my focus and where I lend it because there are some things that I don't want to have my focus. I have a problem with control and domination. I don't want to be controlled and I don't want to be dominated. But if I give my focus to something, it does control me and it does dominate me. So I try to only give my focus to positive goal-oriented things that are good for me rather than things that are not good for me. Because everything you give focus to, you're giving energy to. And you're making that thing bigger. And uh, if you're giving your focus to the wrong thing, if you're just relentlessly focusing on a problem, that problem is going to get bigger than you are eventually. So you have to give your focus to the solution, not the problem. And then I'd say I have to give credit to people. Um, I think over my whole career, I've got a pretty good track record of really hiring outstanding people who have a lot of talent I don't like hiring people that need a lot of management. So I feel like I hire people that are really good at managing themselves, managing their own plans, managing their own priorities, knowing what's good for the company and knowing their part in it and their part to play. And they just make me look good because I hire the right people and let them do what they're supposed to do. And when they're not doing what they're supposed to do and when they're not focused on the right thing, then yeah, we talk about it. And I've lost some people because they didn't like that. They'd rather do what they wanted to do instead of what was best for the company. But most of the time, I think my track record has been pretty good about hiring the right people. So that's what I would attribute my success to. I really want to thank you for your questions. That was a good bunch of questions this time from our listeners. If you've got a question you'd like for us to put on the podcast and answer, uh, or at least give it a good shot, you can send it by email to info at clearvisiondevelopment.com. You can also do a hashtag better than before altogether, better than before with a hashtag on Twitter. I'm at Tony Richards four. I'd love your follow and I'd love you submit your questions or comments. That's it for today's show sponsored by University Subaru. From here, been here, always will be here. University Subaru, those are great guys. Your truly locally owned Subaru dealer. I'm Tony Richards. We'll catch you next time on the next episode of Better Than Before. And until then, everything gets better when you get better. Thank you for listening to Better Than Before with Tony Richards, a business leaders podcast powered by Clear Vision Development Group. For more resources from Tony, visit clearvisiondevelopment.com. Join us next time for another episode of Better Than Before with Tony Richards.
This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.